Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Today's episode is brought to you by Adventure Dice. Adventure Dice is an online dice shop based here in Vancouver, selling a variety of dice and other gaming accessories. Personally, I'm a big fan of their rolling trays and the grounded pixie dice set. Adventure Dice ships for free anywhere in Canada, and if you use the code DMV at checkout, you can get a 10% discount on your purchase. That's DMV for a nice discount on your new tabletop gear. Find the shop at adventuredice.ca and roll for adventure! Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're going to be talking about GMing as a service. Today we're talking to Darren Steele. How's it going, Darren? Uh, very well. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks. No problem. Yeah, thanks for coming on and reaching out. Um, Darren, I guess to start with, uh, where might people know you from? Or specifically, what is it that you do? Yeah, I'm... Uh, I'm somewhat involved in the online sort of Twitter and podcast sphere involving Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games in general. I've got a, a well-reviewed kind of cool podcast that's a one-on-one D&D game set in a in a in an arcane punk world. It's called Shadows of Pindus. I also blog at shadowsofpindus.com uh, where I'm really interested in the social uh, environment of the gaming table I, I think a way to create really great games has a lot to do with tabletop culture how people treat each other how people resolve conflicts and then i talk about this all the time uh, i run games at a local youth shelter through a really cool edmonton nonprofit called level up gaming league uh, where we're doing intentional gaming with at-risk youth that's really awesome so we're going to be talking about game mastering as a service. And I think I'm a web developer. So talking about something as a service just makes a bunch of sense to me because, you know, you've got platforms as a service and all kinds of stuff like that. But for the people who don't quite understand what game mastering as a service means, can you explain what that is and how it relates to game mastering as recreation? Absolutely. I think the first thing to know is that they are uh, different uh, a lot of the times when I'm surfing through online advice forums and I see, you know, new game masters begging for advice on how to deal with with difficult players or problems at their table, I assign a lot of that to people mistaking whether or not they're game mastering as a service or game mastering as a recreation. To start with the recreation side, uh, for us, dungeon masters, game masters, narrators, you know, whoever is doing this huge amount of homework in between sessions uh, to entertain a group of their friends or a group of uh, even if you're meeting people at a convention, uh, it's really important when you're game mastering as recreation that you're doing what's fun for you, too, and that you're attracting an ensemble of people to your table who recognize that a part of their job is the player as the potentially less invested uh, person in the creation of a whole session is to entertain the game master, to make sure that people aren't just playing there for themselves, but that there is an, an awareness of the whole group of people who want to play together, uh, that 
the game master can really get something out of it. And they're participating in the table because they're having fun, not just because they feel like they're doing some sort of art form and, and must entertain whatever personalities have arrived. Uh, game mastering as a service, there's a couple of modalities in which it might happen. Maybe you're doing it for pay, for hire. You're doing like the birthday route or you're running paid games on Roll20. Suddenly there's a new power relationship. There's money exchanging hands and you're going to have to come to really specific agreements with the players at the table about what your responsibilities are versus what their responsibilities are. And you may have to... Uh, do the types of work to fill in things to earn that money if you want to earn it that wouldn't be expected of you in a recreational sense and then what i do is i work through a nonprofit, and i'm specifically choosing to game master for an in need population i'm working with a local youth shelter in edmonton uh, it's called youth empowerment support services and every second week I'm running games there with the intention to create uh, create a social gathering place for people uh, to give them opportunities to pick up, you know, numeracy and literacy and social skills uh, to have a chance to challenge some of their own habits and try new things under the guise of a character. And in this case, as a service, while frankly, I do almost always enjoy it it's a really fun game to participate in most of the time my primary responsibility is to create a safe space for the youth and to tease out their creativity and make sure they're comfortable and so my own you know personal enjoyment in running the exact topics and subjects matter that i want has to take a significant backup or a back seat to figuring out what's useful for the youth. Putting them in front of myself is the difference between running things as a service versus as a recreation where I should absolutely be getting as much out of it as anybody else that I'm participating with. Okay. Um, I just want to touch on something you said really quickly, because we've talked a little bit before about how D&D can be a space for people to, well, to role play as something and kind of get used to the idea of like, uh, I think we've talked about uh, transgender folk using it as a way to figure out like, oh, this is something that I might be or um, for people to find out and play with aspects of their personality in a space where people like, if things don't go well, then they can... Yeah, well, in a in a safe space, essentially, yeah, right? In a um, safe space. Yeah, I believe that was our episode with Lester, who yeah. we really should have on, on again sometime. Yeah, Smart but guy. what I was curious about is he said that you were using D and D as a way to teach literacy and and um, numeracy, basically how to read and how to deal with math for people that don't understand the big five dollar words. Um, and I was just curious how how you s structure the games to achieve those ends because um teaching and that is something that i am kind of interested in and i'm curious how you use dnd as a tool to accomplish that i think one of the things about about literacy and numeracy and the ability of role-playing games to teach it is that uh unlike a classroom where you need to a convince people that this stuff is useful and then b try and teach them how to do it the format of this of gamification of really any kind and D, D and role-playing games included is that 
There's something else they want to achieve, that is to be successful at the game and to enjoy themselves. And they understand immediately right away why they need to be able to add two numbers together and figure out uh, whether they hit a certain DC, a, a certain check. Uh, so I don't have to think too hard about teaching numeracy and literacy. All I have to do is have the game books present and the rules of the game present and offer a play space in which they want to achieve something. And they figure out really quickly that they can achieve it better if they take the time to understand the numbers. Um, across the board, the people who stick around for more than one session, the people who decide they like what's going on, uh, have to get involved and want to get involved in understanding how to be better at it. Alrighty. I was just curious if you had ever like put together a session where they, they have to write a letter and whether it's collaborative or one of them goes off on their own to do something. But that's still... That still makes a lot of sense, though, that just presenting the game as a space where they can come and hang out and play that, you know, especially I'm guessing with kids, kids tend to be a little bit more competitive when it comes to games. Sometimes, you know, there's they're still thinking that you know, one of us has to win, but uh, presenting them with a game where to do better and to to get better and to just have more fun because, you know, your character has more options and all of that stuff as you level up that to get the the most out of that you need to get better at at uh reading and at and at least at basic math right it, you you you're right so one of the things that i haven't i haven't spent a great deal of effort in designing for uh is to get at those skills those are skills that kind of come free with just the fact that they're playing mm -hmm. that said every time our organization starts a new campaign we do make some explicit statements of skills that we do want to practice that we are actually designing for. Uh, so in this particular campaign, like I said, re reading and writing come as a, and numbers come as a bonus. But what I really wanted to design for uh, is to practice player agency and risk taking. Uh, having been with the organization for about eight months before I started creating my own campaign with them, uh, those particular skills are ones that I think that this particular group of at-risk youth really, really needed to practice. Uh, they are uh, people who are living in, you know, chaotic living conditions. Most of them aren't living at home. Some of them are in school. Some of them are in university. They can be anywhere from 14 to, I think, 24 with this particular shelter. And one thing that they haven't got very much is a lot of opportunities in their own life to decide exactly what it is they want to do. They have, you know, the youth shelter leadership or a boss or a teacher or a parent who is telling them to make certain decisions in order to improve things. Uh, so our focus in this most recent campaign is to build puzzles and build challenges and structure the game so they are incentivized to make the big choices for themselves and take the risks. That's where our design work has been recently. I would love to hear an example of a situation that you use with that design in mind. Sure. Uh, let's start with the really broad umbrella. The structural elements of the game itself begins with putting the onus on the players to go out and do. Uh, I'll try and keep this brief without giving you the whole 45-minute pitch, but it's a D&D 5th edition campaign. Uh, a lot of it is taken from Ben Robbins' West Marches style design with some changes made to work here. Uh, the basic plot pitch is there's 
three kingdoms of you know the player's handbook races uh, dwarves and elves and humans and and the various other players handbook races are present and these kingdoms are all under the thumb of a great dragon who for reasons of a betrayal in a war 200 years ago demands that they all deliver each of these three nations delivers a incredibly powerful magical artifact to this dragon every 50 years on this mysterious island across the sea or she'll come and toast everybody and has the power to do that. So they're all afraid. And every 50 years, they spend their entire you know, GDP developing these great artifacts. They send them across the ocean on boats to be delivered at the Wailing Wall in the smoldering jungle at the foot of the molten citadel to the dragon Tiramistar. And on this particular occasion, they sent the tribute and the tribute never arrived. It's all lost on this mysterious island somewhere. So the players are the people who have volunteered from these poor oppressed nations to go across the ocean to the mysterious island and try and figure out what happened to these armies, what happened to this tribute, and then decide whether they will deliver the tribute or maybe try a more permanent solution to their current situation. And the players all show up at the one safe spot on this island, a fort opportunity, and every session begins with whoever shows up for the game that day in that fortress, and they know that there is a broad and mysterious landscape in front of them. They know that there's treasure to be had, there's magical items, there's risks, there's dangers, and there's probably some clues about what happened to this tribute. And the, when the session starts, Whoever's game mastering tells them that the, the fort itself is boring. And you can stay here and you can role play with a handful of poorly detailed NPCs we have, but nothing exciting will happen until you decide to go out and seek. And so nothing happens in the game until they, amongst themselves, decide what mountain do they want to climb, what forest do they want to explore, and goes and does it. Then there are, as you might expect, sort of regular random encounter tables, very detailed landscapes, dungeons hidden throughout the land. But always it is their impetus. We're not giving them really strong quest hooks. Rather, we are promising them that as long as they go out there and turn corners and look in caves, there'll be exciting things uh, that will happen to them. I really like the sound of that because it's such a different way to design a campaign because like... I think most people who have GM'd, they're familiar with like either seeing something in a movie or a comic or a book or hearing an idea from a podcast and going, oh, that sounds cool. And, you know, coming up with a bad guy and figuring out some plot hooks and like basically building some some kind of adventure, whether it's, you know, low, gritty, dark fantasy or high adventure fantasy, but having something where trying to build a campaign where you're trying to teach the players some some skill, something that they can use in the real world, even if it's something as simple as just like, it's okay to take risks sometimes and, and get out there and do something. I think that's, it sounds challenging, but it also sounds incredibly rewarding. One of the hardest things about, it, it has been both. It has been challenging. It has been rewarding. Um, it was 
it was an experiment. I, I haven't known how it's going to go. We're maybe three quarters of the way through the campaign. Uh, and I can say now I'm very happy with how it's turned out. But it was a difficult lesson for them to learn. I was on another I was on another podcast uh, and the guy there, when I told him about these these ways that I'm trying to convince the players to develop agency, he says, geez, you know, it's like people have been playing for 25 years and are terrified to just make choices. They wait for really strong plot hooks to let them know where the game master wants the adventure to go next to create that sort of dramatic cinematic uh, adventure. Uh, these youth... For the first three months they were involved in the campaign, they were terrified that they would get beaten up, uh, that they would lose their character. They were spending, we had three and a half hour sessions and they'd sometimes spend 45 minutes to an hour, just kind of uh, small footing all around the fortress. And they would finally go out and they'd run into a little random encounter and they'd lose you know, eight hit points among the five of them. And they would be looking for opportunities to take long rests. And then there'd be random encounter rolls running while they're taking rests and they get into a bunch of other small fights and they'd have had a goal, uh, but they'll get nowhere near it over the course of the adventure. Hard thing for us as game masters to do was to let that happen because we are all, uh, we all want them to have a good time. We want them to have fun. We all have a sense of what a great dramatic arc to a session is and so it's very tempting to make sure that the cool thing happens next rather than than letting their choices uh, give rise to how much fun that they have but we held on we had lots of internal discussions about are we doing it wrong it was about three months in and they suddenly got it they had the realization they realized that twice they tried to make it up to this fort at the top of the mountain and got totally stymied and took too many risks rests and never got anywhere near it and they came together pre-session they walked into the session there's five people they'd spent two weeks since the last session creating the exact plan that they wanted they figured out who was going to make the decisions on the way there they sat down at the table they started going we're turning left here we're going to follow the river we're going up to the tree line Random encounters came, one came, they dealt with it immediately. They had a great plan for seeing stuff coming. They got attacked by a cougar, they destroyed it. They arrived at the gate. They already had a plan for there. They had these people flank this way, those people flank that way. Somebody turn into a lizard, another person ride them up over the top of it. They turned into a SWAT team uh, and achieved everything they wanted. And the level of satisfaction that they expressed at the end of that session was exactly what we were looking for. Because not only did they achieve something in the session, but they had had so many examples of how we weren't going to do it for them that they owned it all themselves. And since that moment, uh, they get it. They're getting that core of it, that the world is theirs to affect and it's a real place, if you will. It's not a place that is bending itself to make sure that they have fun. They decide to go get into trouble and learn that it's enjoyable. I think you kind of hit upon something there that just like the players, GMs are like, well, GMs are storytellers, I think. It's why we all enjoy doing this. And, and I think that like the players, we're kind of we're kind of used to how things go in stories, how, you know, there is there is a plot thread. There is something happening. There is always, you know, the action is always moving towards a climax. And to have a game where 
you have three months of sessions where it's like, well, you're not deciding to do anything, so nothing happens. I think I think a lot of DMs and GMs would have probably given up. I think I would have been I would have been freaking out, being like, oh my god, everything is going wrong. Nothing is going to happen. Oh my god, I have failed horribly. And to to persevere and and to push through that and to have that moment that you just spoke about, that's that's amazing. Yeah, that sounds like it was quite the experience. <laughs> and 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 I was every bit as nervous as you describe. But to fold this back into the you know the thesis of this thing as GMing for service, uh, had that been my home game, uh, I don't know if I could have stuck it out. Uh, if I were you know trying to get paid to entertain you know people, I definitely wouldn't have stuck that out. Uh, I'd have been you know bending over backwards to make sure that something cool happened all the time and they were entertained and were going to hire me back. Uh, but having a really clear sense of what the purpose of this campaign was uh, is how I was able to stick it out. Had I not had a really specific mission statement for all the design work we were doing, yeah, I'd never, I'd, I'd, I'd have lost my nerve way earlier. <laughs> uh, speaking of design work, uh, I would really love to hear about how you kind of structure your games because you you mentioned to us before we recorded that you have a kind of a large and variable population and not everybody always shows up and that kind of thing so how do you go about preparing uh, for your sessions uh, cool I'm so glad you asked this question um, because this whole this whole format started uh, from the problem of that population. Before we decided what we were going to work on, actually, we had the population problem first. So we're, we're running our game in a youth shelter, uh, and it's not mandatory for anybody to be there. And we've run some really successful campaigns as the, as the nonprofit organization of the youth shelter in the past, but they've been more traditional campaigns, more uh, sort of uh, cinematic or, or dramatic arc campaigns. And, you know, we've recruited six, uh, seven, eight youth into the game. There are volunteers involved. So they're already big tables and more youth want to be involved. And we've had to say, well, the table's kind of full and we don't want to make the experience lame for the people who are involved. So please go on a wait list. And then, you know, these are shelter youth and, and their lives are not necessarily the most stable so even when we've got eight people signed up for a game oftentimes we're getting together for game night and there's two people there uh it didn't seem right to have people on a wait list and also have an empty table and we didn't know how to do that because we didn't know how to fix it because with those cinematic dramatic uh campaigns you can you can ruin the fun for the people who've been involved the whole time by bringing in someone new who doesn't have relationships with the characters, who doesn't understand the plot hooks, who uh, can send the whole thing sideways after people have been working on creating something dramatic. So the solution was uh, to take a look. I took a hard look at the West Marches format. Uh, and what that means is... First of all, we're we're much more interested in the actual fun of exploration than we are of the creation of a operatic narrative, uh, so that the game can become a little bit cellular and self-contained in session to session. Uh, we created a, a hex crawl of a kind uh, with a pretty well-detailed wilderness and filled it with all sorts of interesting things to do. We kept dungeons to sort of like a five-room dungeon size size. We wanted 
any one thing that they go explore would be something that they could get to explore fairly thoroughly and get home inside one three and a half hour session. Uh, we incorporated a magical effect that is called the surge. Uh, so this island that they're on, it's governed by old fae uh, magics and treaties, and these people aren't even supposed to be here. So every once in a while, there's a magic effect that tries to throw everybody uh, from these from these kingdoms of players' handbook races into the ocean. Uh, and yet some magical person in the past has produced these necklaces. And so as long as you're wearing those when the surge happens, you end up back at your home fort at Fort Opportunity. So even if people weren't going home at the end of a session, we always had a reason to be able to tell them they started there. So whoever was there could split up into as many parties as they wanted. Uh, all of this had to be incredibly well documented because we're running multiple game masters. I'm a game master. I've got three other volunteers who are game masters and everything is hot linked and interlinked and well documented so that any of them, if they are running a second or a third group on a given night and they just, and the players decide that they want to head into the highlands or the saltwood or the lake district, they've got instant access to a formatted adventure where they can read and improvise on the fly everything that is in that location. That idea of having something, an, an explanation in world as to why at the start of a session, all of the players start at the home base is amazing yeah that is a stroke of genius like the surge is great because it's something that i've been thinking about because i've been wanting to do a west marches game for a while now and just have a like yep whoever shows up we're gonna play a game and trying to figure out like oh do you if you have a player who was in the last session but now in this session it's a new group of people they're starting from the home base again do you just hand wave that somehow that adventure wrapped up properly even though they were in the middle of fighting a hydra or or what and that idea of like it's a self-contained island so you have this magical effect like that is just it is such a nice way to say like yep you all start back at the fort yeah it works good it, it creates some kind of cool mini games uh we we have some experience, you know, bounties on certain things that people do just to keep the game running smoothly. People get extra experience just for showing up on time. Then there's no shame for the youth who are coming in late, but there's an incentive for them to show up on time. Uh, and at the end of a session, they know that sessions end at 8.25 or 8.30. And if they get back to Fort Opportunity on foot, if they plan their session to get home before the surge happens, they get an experience bonus because if they wait for the surge, it really, really shakes them up, right, is our, our explanation. It's a very uncomfortable, painful sort of teleportation experience. Uh, but it creates a really cool end of game every night because they know where it's coming to an end. They're responsible for managing their time rather than the game master being responsible for making sure there's a cool cliffhanger for them to end on. And sometimes they're pushing their luck and they decide they don't care about that experience. They're curious enough to go around the corner. Or sometimes they're in the middle of a huge fight with a super dangerous enemy and they have to go into a defensive position and they know if they can last, you know, 15 more minutes they'll get out. Uh, but if anybody's down and dead, they're obviously not coming with them. Uh, if they're six layers uh, down in a cavern and they've lost some of their items and they know that the surge is coming, they know they're going to have to do that much work to get back. If they've been a little slow play on a session and have spent a whole time just trying to destroy some guards and are just about to 
slam into the treasure room, but they've messed up their time and get surged out. They know that that place is going to be reinforced in the next couple of weeks. They're going to have a bunch more work to do. So they're going to either, they're going to want to move really quickly. Uh, and in other situations, they'll be in a really dangerous situation and they'll realize the surge is coming and two people will start holding off the bad guys and everybody else just starts scooping up armfuls of treasure, looking forward to <laughs> teleporting out, you know, with as much of it as possible and using it as a way to rob creatures that they can't otherwise fight, uh, which I love because it means that they're taking agency. They are doing exactly what I want, which is understanding the rules of the world uh, and making big choices to get what they want out of it. That is super awesome. And already that, that this idea of something that resets you back to a position is sparking ideas in my head. But um, let's talk about the, some of the other stuff that you've done. Um, so we've been talking a lot about, about design and how to create a campaign that works for uh, the, the, this group that you're running. But you've also uh, just recently published an original adventure, uh, The Wizard's Egg. That's right. The Wizard's Egg. The Wizard's Egg is, it's an original adventure. It's the first one that I've published. I think that there's some more on the way. Uh, and it is an adventure that I probably wouldn't use in the youth shelter. Certainly not in this campaign. It's uh, its a very different genre of work in the D&D world. It's, it's more politically complicated. Uh, it's full of class warfare. The setting is an, an arcane punk city, uh, a high magical city. So here, here's where it comes from. Uh, in my time in, in Forgotten Realms and, and Lord of the Rings and all sorts of D&D settings, it seems like in all these sort of mid-magical settings, there's always a time that came before that was way more wondrous and far wilder with more powerful magics and technologies of magics. And the reason that writers always put these in is to make sure that when I'm poking around in a farmer's field and uncover a dungeon, that there could be something really cool and magical that's buried and long forgotten. But I've always thought that those hyper magical times in the past were probably even cooler than poking around in a farmer's field and finding something. So I crafted this city of Pindus where all the magical artifacts that's, that are in everything you find in a more traditional fantasy setting are first being crafted as magical technologies. People are flying griffins amongst tall stone-shaped towers. And there's something really bad happening out in the wilderness. And so refugees of all sorts of races and creeds are flooded into this one mega city and so when you're in this city you can find uh well i really wanted to be able to use monstrous races in it and so it's a great setting to play as orcs and hobgoblins and so forth in it uh and anybody can be good and anybody can be bad and anybody can be greedy and and forget what race they are there are arcane guilds which you might read in a more contemporary setting as corporations who are at cross interests uh, there's a huge wealth disparity, and it is very difficult for anybody in this world to rise from their station. There's general downward mobility, except for the very wealthiest, which, you know, may be inspired by present day events. Yeah, I was about to say that sounds kind of familiar. It's, it's actually like, it's sounding like, it, it almost sounds to me like it's the best part of Shadowrun, which is the setting, but in D&D. So you don't have to worry yeah. about Shadowrun's insane system. Sorry for anybody yeah. who likes Shadowrun. Sorry, not sorry. But putting it in with all of the races and all of the fun of D&D &D and 
And it that sounds really cool. I like that idea. I also like the idea of just like, well, we keep hearing all these tales of the ancient times when things was good. Let's go check them out. Yeah, it's like I want to play in Netheril, you know? Like, why, why, why do I want to explore abandoned cities when I could be on a flying one? Uh, clear, clearly, my love of sci-fi uh, pre- predates my love of fantasy, though I do adore them both. Uh, so in this adventure, you know, you start as it's, it's a one-shot adventure and it's got everything in its 30 pages to give you kind of a soft introduction to my world of Pendis, which is where my podcast also takes place. Uh, but it also is a really easy, it fits really well into Eberron or Ravnica. So if you've already got a D&D, uh, a D&D place you love, there's lots in it to get the adventure out of. But there are arcane guild interests. You're hired to go into the rich district of the city, uh, this light mill, a place where you have to dress up as some sort of routine laborer in order to infiltrate your way in. Uh, And there is a hedge wizard who has stolen something from your employer, has these these artifacts hidden away in a wizard's egg, which is a contiguous stone uh, laboratory, which hangs off a skyscraper 70 stories in the air. So dangerous experiments can happen in the middle of this densely populated city without blowing the hell out of all the neighbors. And you've got to infiltrate uh, and demolish those stolen artifacts. And it's cool because there's great opportunities for combat, but I'm really into um, intrigue and social encounters as well. So there's lots of ways in. uh, There's lots of ways to deal with the problems. Many people have commented on how you don't necessarily need to fight at all, but there's great encounters available. And it includes my own sort of rules for running a skill challenge at the end of it for a really exciting third act to the piece. And it's available on drive-thru RPG. It's called The Wizard's Egg. It's reasonably priced. And I've spoken to so many people who've tried it and said that it feels really fresh flavor for a D&D adventure. Very, very arcane punk. I, I love the idea of arcane punk, just the images that it evokes in my head of just, yeah, all of that. The D&D and punk together, just, yes, yeah. please more. Yeah, the, the point where sci-fi and fantasy, like, kind of intercepts has always been a sweet spot for me in fiction and stuff like that. So I'm going to have to check that out at some point. Um, tell us um, a bit about Shadows of Pindus. Yeah, so Shadows of Pindus is is set in this setting that I've already uh, sort of given you the the hot pitch on. Uh, it's an excuse to really explore class difficulties, uh, the idea of the adventurer as being not somebody who's who wants to go out and get treasure, but really the only way to sort of lift yourself up by your bootstraps in a world where there's there's old money and organizations which are selfish and don't have very much interest in the common person. Uh, and uh, the first thing that was created in the world of Pindus uh, preceding this adventure is the Shadows of Pindus podcast, which follows uh, a an emo drow hero, <laughs> uh, a, uh, an addict, uh, somebody who's really sort of run over and left behind by this city, who's disconnected from his culture, who's disconnected from his community, uh, who begins as a drug runner who's being paid in drugs by a 
by an employer of certainly low morals and struggling to find a community and find support uh, in a world where to the uh, to most people to, to anyways to most people who wield power you are only interesting to them so far as useful to them and he does what's in, what he has that people don't have is that in this world where nature itself is rising up and seems to be resisting the presence of magical technology and civilization uh, where people are suspicious of it, where plants are burned out of the streets uh, because they're considered to be an enemy of kinds and people subsist on synthetic arcane gels that very powerful guilds craft. He has skills in druidic magic that he keeps secret. So he has a, a seed of the profane in him, in this city. Uh, and needs to explore. So one thing I'm I'm curious about is I think you said earlier that this was a it's a one v one is it's it's a DM and a single player which is kind of what I'm hearing. So how does is is that correct first? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Okay, how does that work with regards to handling? I guess like do you have to plan encounters any differently? Like what's it like when it's just one player? Because I think the majority of DMs out there are familiar with running a game with at, at least two or three people running a game with just one. I'm just, I'm wondering how that works and how it differs from the average D and D game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. It's less common. It's the way that I was introduced to the game. Uh, and, and I've always had a, an affection for a one-on-one -on -one game. Uh, I've written a little bit about, how a person can structure it to make it work, but I can give you some of the kind of high points of how it differs. Uh, from a design perspective, there's a few things you want to do. Uh, one is be prepared for things to go way off the rails. When you've got a group of players, I, in my experience, a lot of the time groups of people will kind of average themselves out into more predictable paths. There's always a person at a table who's got a really wild sideways way of solving a problem that would take you way off of your prep. But when there's four other people at the table, usually they're able to claw that person back into something that's predictable. When you have just a single person at the table, there's no averaging. Whatever idea comes into their head is going to be what happens. And sometimes it's pretty crazy. So you've got to have your improv skills, you know, up to snuff. And you also need to approach the game, uh, not with a desire for certain things to happen to hit story beats, but with an intense curiosity for how that player and that character are going to deal with the challenges that come along. Uh, one of the cool things about running a one-on-one -on -one game is I've always heard authors who talk about their characters as if their characters have kind of come alive and, and those characters tell them how the plot goes. And I've never in my writing managed to achieve that myself. But when you're working with one player, you can bet they're going to keep you on your toes in just that way. You'll get something way more interesting than you can come up with on your own. It's interesting, though, you meant, you'd mentioned about how 
having more players averages out their decision making process. It just occurred to me, like, it's the same thing with dice, that if you've got a group of four people and one person rolls really badly, whether it was they really needed to hit the bad guy or they needed to roll really well when they're rolling for their healing potion, because if they don't roll well enough, then this next attack will take them out. Like, you don't have to worry about that so much when there's more than one player, because if one player has a bad roll, he's got backups they've got backups when it's just mm-hmm. one player and if they roll badly it's like well time to run away now bye <laughs> yeah you're, you're you're right uh that that that's that's very perceptive and it brings me to a, another thing that i've thought about in it is you when you're working with one player uh you know a single character death could very well be the end of the campaign uh there, there, there are ways that you can continue the campaign that they could take on another character in it but you want to think like you want fail states besides death to exist and be real fail states uh, that increase the stakes. Uh, one great thing about a setting like Pindus is, you know, leverage and debts uh, and blackmail are every bit as potent as just pure violence against people. So when a character in a one-on-one uh, gets themselves into trouble, there's usually somebody who's willing to make them a very unfair offer. Uh, or getting into trouble might mean, you know, someone that you care about gets threatened or killed. Uh, fail states deepen. You want fail states to deepen the character and the player's uh, experience of an attachment bond with the world itself, rather than just kill them and wipe them out of it entirely. Yeah, this this show sounds great. I'm gonna have to add it to my my ever growing list of actual plays to look at. Is there anything else you'd like to say about running a one v one game? The one thing about running a one v one game uh, that is true in every game, but exacerbated by the nature of the one v one game, uh, is it's intimate and it requires a great deal of vulnerability. Uh, and it because there's not um, because there's not a greater audience of people who like audibly laugh at the jokes and the silly things that happen. Its general tone, I think, is quite a lot more uh, serious. It's a really great structure if you're working with somebody that you trust uh, to explore uh, difficult themes. Uh, we explore a lot of addiction themes in the podcast uh, in a way that is much more sensitive and real than you might expect from an actual play Dungeons Dragons podcast. Uh, and I think that's what the the duet format is for. If you've got somebody who you trust and you like playing with and you want to explore the the dirt, <laughs> you want to explore the, the blood, you want to explore what makes people tick uh, and get into it, it's awesome. If you want to have a beer and pretzels game, you should invite a few more friends over. (laughs) (laughs) So something that I'm curious about that you mentioned in the in the notes that I'm curious about. I don't know how curious Jesse is about it, but uh, Battletech, it's a game that I've it's a game that I've heard a bunch about. And I think I've got um, I've got the free RPG day book, uh, which is like a small little thing that comes with a couple of pre-generated characters, basic rules and a small little like 15 minute to half an hour uh, adventure to just introduce you to the game. 
Uh, yeah, that's that's the a time of war quick start guide. I think so. Yeah, and yeah, one of the things that I'm I'm curious about because one of the things that I know about BattleTech is that from my understanding, it's actually two games. There's the hey, we're in giant mechs and we're crushing buildings and whatnot, and then there's the I'm not in my mech and oh damn. <laughs> yes, you're very vulnerable. Uh, the, the, there's there's actually more than two games. Okay, uh, okay. Gonna, you you may have to decide uh, when to stop me because I can talk forever about BattleTech. Though I'm not ever very sure that I'm being very interested. <laughs> my wife kind of glazes over when I go on my rants. Uh, but so BattleTech's been around for 35 years it, it, since 1984 uh, when the, the first version of it came out which was a tabletop tactical war game where you would have like four battle mechs on four battle mechs in a turn-based hex game uh and that might be you know that's a full nights of entertainment you know that might be four hours um and what's cool about battletech and very different than something like DD is it's gone through like updates but it's never really gone through a full addition change but there have been games added onto it so eventually the mech warrior rpg came out uh which was different than the tactical game it was it wasn't it was a role-playing game and so it was a you know it was more granular you're getting down into exactly what sort of weapons you're carrying and the individual skills where when you're playing the tactical game it only matters how good you are at shooting and how good you are at, at piloting um and what was cool about them is that they were they worked with each other. They were cross compatible. So you could theoretically uh, play one campaign where you start as people on the ground and you're exploring and going through political intrigue, uh, going through adventure, you know, working uh, at like foot raids, uh, whatever you want to do with a very comprehensive role playing game system. And then you may come to a point in the campaign where there's going to be a big face off between some armored forces and you might jump into your battle mech and you might switch rule sets and everything's cross compatible. So you can translate them into the tactical game, which is a little less granular uh, and you can play, you know, a battle between groups of battle mechs in the tactical game. It might take four hours. Whereas if you were trying to go through every granular rule in the role playing game, the same size battle, you might be into it for eight hours. So you can scope out into something a little simpler. Uh, and another cool thing about it is that there are several other scopes to move to. So with the regular Battletech tactical rules, you might be in for four hours with a four on four game. Uh, if you wanted to go to company size combat 12 on 12, my God, you're looking at putting a whole weekend into it. But there's different sets of rules, again, cross compatible, so you can translate it all. There's one called Alpha Strike, there's one called Battle Force, uh, and you can change rule sets, get a little less granular. And now I'm running Alpha Strike, and I can do a 12 on 12 combat in two hours and then translate back down into the really granular role-playing game stuff after the fact. And there are sets of rules all the way up to running whole, you know, interstellar nations of 500 planets and, you know, uh, putting resources into place for multi-planet invasions. And you can run them in a tolerable amount of time. Uh, and then over the 35 years, they've added lots and lots and lots of rules. So understanding all these things and moving between them can become quite complicated but they're all also cellular. So you can just take the part you want and run it. It's, uh, it's a simulation of a universe that is different from ours, and it is 
thoroughly done. <laughs> One of the things that uh, I I think I understand is that this is this is one of those old school simulationist games where like if you are um playing which 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 is the one where you're the RPG but you're in your mech is that is the that... RPG but you're in your mech well yeah so so in the RPG there are rules for combating inside battle mechs as well uh so yeah, my my understanding is that like it's got rules for like oh you've been hit where on your body have you been hit okay you've been hit in your arm what does that do like it's that really simulationist style but my understanding from what I've heard because I've um, one of the podcasts that I listen to is Fear the Boot and they're huge fans of BattleTech and MechWarrior and my yeah. under- my understanding is that this this is a game that even though it's simulationist it doesn't bog you down as much as some other games would well i can't speak directly it is it is by far uh the most granular and complicated game that i play um it's you know i learned battletech MechWarrior rpg around the same time as i was learning third edition DD. Uh, i think in complexity of rule set it's much closer to third edition than it is fifth edition uh it its actual basic engine is very much like the shadow run system which you uh disparaged uh, <laughs> earlier and and i don't blame you um battletech has some really cool things to offer but what it does best is give people who are already BattleTech heads a chance to play in that universe. I don't think that the system itself uh, should ever be translated into covering any other universe. There's nothing about the engine that is totally spectacular on its own, but it is a really great simulation of all the fiction, all the video games for all of us diehard fans of this particular intellectual property. Yeah, it sounds kind of like... Um the the way that the the dark heresy rpg and how that relates to the warhammer 40k games where you know you've got warhammer 40k which is a tabletop miniatures game where you've got lots of units you're rolling lots of dice and you're playing out these these battles and then you have a game like like dark heresy where it gets it's also fairly simulationist from what i understand i haven't really taken a close look at the rules but it's a game it's also it fits really well into the universe of the game because it is a very deadly game where if you're playing as a guardsman and you're going up against a chaos space marine you better get real lucky real quick <laughs> yeah yeah you know, i i I agree. Like it, it is very much like that. Like you said, you don't want to be caught outside your battle mech uh, in conflict. I think that's a really cool thing about the system is that it is a huge part of the fiction of BattleTech. Uh, is is politics, uh, subterfuge, is you know mercantilism, negotiation, uh, romance, uh, and the way that the combat rules work in the MechWarrior RPG is you absolutely want to have the advantage if you're going to get into a into a fight. You want to get inside your battle mech. But I think that that really incentivizes a style of play that embraces, um, embraces the value of lives in them. <laughs> uh, you, you're going to spend time at the table uh, exploring the more romantic options or more romantic aspects of the universe simply because getting into a fight with every person you see is a way to just die in that particular system really quickly. 
So, Darren, we're we're coming to the end of our time here, and I just want to ask you kind of our traditional ending question, which is if you could go back in time and give yourself uh, one piece of advice about GMing as service, um, what would that be? My piece of advice would be to be really clear about when a person is GMing as service and when a person is not GMing as a service. Uh, I have a, a suspicion that there are a high percentage of people who've gone into game mastering and dungeon mastering who have some codependent tendencies. Uh, anybody who's willing to put in, you know, the extra 30 hours of world creation before their players even start up and then unknown amounts of hours crafting terrain uh, and characters in between sessions so that their friends can show up and play might be taking themselves out of the equation a little bit and feeling like if they can just if they can just do this thing if they can just thrill their friends if they can just figure out how to do the math on their end to make an exciting time somehow things will be better uh and the truth is is that when you're playing these games recreationally you should have expectations of the people at the table wanting to be there and wanting to entertain you as well. So if you are not game mastering a service, know that uh, this is for your enjoyment too. And it is totally okay to keep looking until you find a group of people to play with who make you feel great about game mastering rather than continuing to assume that you need to do something to entertain the people at your table. That is a great piece of advice. Thank Very well you. said. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, so where can people find you and all of your stuff online? Uh, a great place to start is, uh, is the website of my podcast where I blog as well. It's shadowsofpindus.com. That's P-I-N-D-U-S, the, the most predictable way to spell it. Um, there is more Pindus stuff. This isn't coming out till September 20th, so we're recording quite a lot earlier, and I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I am in talks with some very talented improvisational friends of mine about a Twitch stream that may be coming in the near future. Uh, and if you want to uh, have a chance at seeing what that's all about, uh, keep an eye on the website, but find me on Twitter. I'd love to know what your audience who are listening to this are up to. I like to interact there uh, and I will update as these cool new projects in the work become more concrete and you'll find me at DSteelGM. That's D-S-T-E-E-L-E-G-M on Twitter. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a blast. Yeah, I'm so happy that uh, that we connected over Twitter ourselves. It's been a real pleasure to spend this time with you. Yeah, and the 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 Level Up uh, Gaming League that you're doing that sounds amazing, and I I hope you continue to have fun doing that. Well, let me tell you their website too. Yes, that's please. uh that's levelupyeg.ca. Our president Mark Mellenberg is a young, incredibly ambitious, incredibly talented guy. Uh, we are we're doing fundraising there. Uh, if you want to support these worthy causes, we, in addition to my project, we're working with of uh, another youth shelter, and we're working with a John Howard Society in the city. Uh, they're doing all sorts of great work and are very deserving of support and interest. 
All right, thank you. And uh, listeners, please check that out and maybe send them some support if you can afford to. Okay, thank, thanks again for coming on. It was great chatting with you. My pleasure. You're very kind. Well, we'll talk to you again. Talk to you later. Bye. 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 Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. You can find us on social media at, at DMs of Vancouver and also on Facebook. Uh, you can find this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and t- tell your friends about the show. Word of mouth really helps shows like ours grow and find an audience. And we're also part of the Cave Goblin Network. You can find our shows and many others at cavegoblins.com. And you can support us and the rest of the network at patreon.com slash cavegoblins. Doug Vandalay here for Comedy Zeitgeist on the Cave Goblin Network. Each week I sit down with a comedian to talk about their career and their comedic influences. Learn about your favorite comedians talking about their favorite comedians. That's Comedy Zeitgeist on the Cave Goblin Network. Hey there, lovely listeners. I'm Talia Murdoch, and I'm here to tell you about my show, Everything Economics. Every week, I talk about the world around you, specific social and economic issues, and dive into how fantasy realms would work in real life. That's Everything Economics on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.